When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This episode is being broadcast on the 27th of January 2021. It is 76 years to the day since Auschwitz-Birkenau, the largest Nazi concentration camp, the largest death camp, was liberated by the Red Army. It was decided by a special session of the United Nations General Assembly that this day would henceforth be remembered as International Holocaust Remembrance Day, remembering the tragedy of the Holocaust that occurred during the Second World War, in which 6 million Jews at least and around 11 million other people were killed by the Nazi regime and its collaborators. You'll be hearing later in the week a podcast which remembers some of the other groups that were targeted by the Nazis, people of colour, Romani and homosexuals, for example. But on this podcast, we're going to hear from a range of people who have themselves been caught up in genocide. A pretty disturbing podcast, this one, just want to warn you. It's pretty difficult to listen to some of these descriptions. Um, we've got Sakpal Din. He's a Cambodian a survivor of the genocide there. We've got Sophie Mazareka. She's a survivor of Rwanda. We've got Ruth Barnett, who escaped from Germany on the kinder transport, but his entire family were then killed in Germany. And we've got Karol Permovich, who survived a Bosnian camp. I recorded this podcast years ago and a very enterprising teacher at a West London school called Andy Lawrence invited me to meet these survivors. He's, he's made it a lifelong ambition of his teaching to expose the young people under his care to so stories of genocide survivors and he's achieved remarkable things. This podcast originally went out years ago but I always think it's worth repeating because it's so powerful. As I say there will be another podcast this week to mark the, this annual event. We do have lots of Holocaust related material the story of Jan Pilecki, for example, the remarkable man who volunteered to go into Auschwitz, that's all available at historyhit.tv. Um, if you head over there, it's still January, use the code January and you get a massive discount. So please head over and check that out. In the meantime, here are four remarkable genocide survivors. So we're sitting here in the theatre at Hampton School. I'm joined by four very remarkable 
people, why don't you introduce yourself? Let's start with you, Sofal. Could you say who you are and very briefly the reason you're here? I am Sokpal Din, the survivor of uh, the genocide killing field in Cambodia. And I've been here to uh, share my story with the students and about the atrocity, the killing field, and with my experience in the killing field. And we'll be hearing more about that, if you can better talk about it in a second, but let's introduce Sophie. Hello, my name is Sophie Masereka. I'm here for third time to make awareness of Rwanda genocide, where I survived from 1994. Ruth. I'm Ruth Barnett. I came to England on the Kinder Transport in 1939 at the age of four with my seven-year-old brother. And uh, although I was repatriated to Germany, I couldn't take it when I was 14 in 1949, and I've lived in England ever since. I'm Kemal Pervanich. I'm a survivor of the Bosnian War. And I'm here because I participate in a lot of educational projects, such as this one taking place today at Hampton School. Well, it's so uh, incredible to meet you all, and it's a wonderful opportunity because you're all prepared to talk about what you've been through to get the, the audience out there to appreciate not just the World War II genocide that many of us think about, but of course the more recent ones. I mean, let's start with you, Sofal. The killing fields. Briefly, what was your experience? What did you go through during that Cambodian genocide under Pol Pot? It's very hard to describe and to for the everyone, the, the audience to imagine and to to understand or to believe. At the young age of uh, seventeen, as a t- young teenagers, and live in Phnom Penh in the city, and I never been um, working hard labor anything. But over twenty four hours, my life changed completely. We forced out of the house at the gunpoint on the morning on the 17th of April 1975. Since then, I never, never go back and to see my house again. We just, uh, forced out of the house of the city and live uh, working hard labor, work hard labor in the, the, the farm and the rice paddy in the forest in the jungle. So this life experience is, um, is, Difficult to describe how horrible, you know, completely changing my life completely because give me a bit more um, experience and learn from that lesson from the killing field, um, make me more understand what life all about and make me a stronger person as well. <laughs> it's yeah. remarkable to hear you say that. Of your close social, social set, your family, extended family, friends, how many survived that genocide by the time the Vietnamese invaded and brought it to an end? Not many. I lost most of my relatives. Some families, my uncle, the whole family wiped out. A few families are completely wiped out. The, the mother, father, all the children, some of them got sick children. Doesn't exist anymore, all gone. But, but the conditions in the rural location where you were sent to work, a lot of the time people were sent there to be worked to death, but you managed to survive? Uh, because I still having hope in my mind. The one thing I would like to say is never give up your hope. At the time, yes, it was hard uh, with disease, starvation, malaria, everything. But I still have hope in my heart to say one day someone will drop from the sky, someone somewhere come to rescue us. That's my hope. That's why I survived. It's my hope. And how many members of your family were you there with and did they survive? No, I had my mother... Two brothers, one sister, and my grandma with me. We live in one place, in one little hut. 
in the jungle. All the rest is spread across the jungle. So one by one, um, we heard the news that my auntie died and then my cousin died. All the rest keep dying and all dead. Except uh, my, I lost one, my brother and my grandmother in the, in the jungle with me. They all live with me. And that's it. Only three of us, uh, four of us left. My mother, myself, my brother and sister, we came to England in 1987 by Red Cross. And all the rest, all dead, gone. Sophie, just what happened to you once Rwanda descended into total chaos in 1994? Um, I would say that genocide began even before 94. It began when I was born. And I, I found myself discriminated when you had, you don't have education. That's a genocide itself. I was dis- discriminated to go further education. My father, who, who was educated, he was not privileged to get a better job like the others, and. Uh, uh, when the actual genocide started in 1994, um, we were being killed like fries. We were not considered at all. We were killed badly. They didn't consider us like human. Um, we, women being raped prior to be, being killed. Um, Children, innocent children, being killed. All the people. Um, it was it wasn't easy, but seeing today that Rwanda had become better place to live, um, I really thank God, and also feeling sorry for those who suffered at the time. We've talked a little bit uh, before the recording started about how you survived, and you, you say it was a miracle. Was your family not not as lucky as you were? For me, it looks like God wanted me to live so that I'd be alive today to tell the story. They, I wasn't better than them. I was supposed to die like them. I was on the risk to die like them, but Miracles were happening for me too, to be alive. Ruth, uh, a different experience for you. I came from Berlin. Uh, my parents got me a place on the kinder transport. Uh, 10,000 children came to England on the kinder transport. Uh, so I escaped the Nazi determination to cleanse the whole of Europe of Jews and gypsies. Um, A million and a half children did not get a chance of rescue uh, and were murdered. Were you, I mean, are you aware of the impact on on the wider family or were lots of people able to escape or were you almost unique in in that uh, being so lucky? My father, who was Jewish, escaped and survived in Shanghai in China and came back to Germany. My mother, who was Christian, German, Aryan, uh, stayed in Germany but had the worst time of the four of us uh, and never was able to talk about it. 
Um, other relatives um, I never knew because I was only four when I came to England. Uh, but I think uh, the wider family perished in the camps. Kamal, what's your what's your story? Well, uh, I was very unlucky that history knocked on my door and that I ended up in concentration camps. And, um, you know, my, my story is nothing new. If you go back in time, you hear exactly the same stories or exactly the same story from so many other survivors. And I'm just very privileged and very lucky to be here today because um, in this kind of situation to survive, you just need that small bit of luck. And I... Um, I uh, was given or I received that small bit of luck. Can I ask uh, a little bit more? What, what, what side of the, of the ethnic, national, religious divide did you find yourself and, and, and how badly did that rip apart your community? Was it a mixed community where you were living? Well, my community was a mixed community, even though I lived in a Muslim village. But when I went to school, no one made any difference between ourselves. And I was taken to, to the first camp, the Amarska camp, only because my persecutors identified me as a Bosnian Muslim. But I used to identify myself as a Yugoslav, so no one even asked me what, what my identity was. And uh, th this is actually, when we analyze more, you know, with more information like this, then we realize that what happened in Bosnia was genocide. And, and how were you able to survive your months-long internment in these camps? Well, uh, many people in the camp asked themselves, why is this going on? I didn't ask any such questions. I just wanted to survive. So my survival instinct kicked in. I was young. I wanted to live. I wanted to see my parents and my elder brother again. I was just so hungry of life. That's interesting that all of you have said, mentioned that survival is about uh, your own outlook as well, your own, well, I don't yeah. know, is optimism the right word? I don't know, but a belief that you're going to get through. And um, Do you think, do you put that down to, to the reason that you were able to survive and, and many others weren't, Sokhvan? Well, I, I would say um, myself, um, I keep praying every day and I, give, I have my hope. And when my grandmother died, I keep praying to her soul and spirit to come to help me and protect me. What I believe in, uh, someone up there, out there would help you. And whatever you suffer today, maybe you just pay your time, whatever in the past, as a Buddhism practice. But uh, at the end of the day, if you feel you're still having hope and being positive and try to fight, try to be survive, and then that you'll be all right. You, 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 that you have to believe in yourself that uh, one day someone will have you and your hope never give up your hope. That's what I believe. Yeah. Did you ever give up hope, Sophie? I didn't know I would survive. I was waiting any minute. Any minute I was waiting. I didn't know I would survive. And Ruth, you've, you've spoken, I think, yeah, a positive outlook. Um, you certainly had to have luck. And I had luck in the form of a place on the kinder transport. But you also had to know how to use that luck. And I think a positive at attitude to want to live was also very important. 
Um, and um, attitude to other people, valuing other people. Um, from the, all the research of the Holocaust, those who found somebody to be with, to talk with, to support each other, uh, were more able to use their lucky break than those who hadn't, those who were totally alone. I mean, it strikes me you guys are all living, breathing reasons to engage with our history and, and tell the stories from our past. You're all spokespeople for uh, genocide awareness. Does it fill you with dread when you think of young people not engaging with history and not, and not studying the kind of things that you, that you guys have all lived through? Let's start with Kamal. When we talk about formal education, I think history is the most important subject because it, it has the most influence on us. Maths, physics, you know, geography uh, haven't got the same influence. And I think we need, we need to expose young people to these stories, not because I survived these things myself. Even if I didn't have these experiences, I would still believe that, you know, we, we need to have this awareness of what, of what we as individuals are capable of doing because I say the things that happened to me were not committed by some monsters. They were committed by the people from my own community, by my former schoolmates, former neighbours, former teachers. And it has actually taught me that, you know, I also have this capacity for evil. And history, I say history can teach us so much. Uh, but we haven't got enough history in our classrooms. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I find that, but about your story particularly extraordinary. That, that so they, you, you, you absolutely knew your persecutor. In the case of Sophie, her, her persecutors had been distanced through culture and propaganda from her. But in your case, they were they were actually friends of yours. I recognised most of the people who attacked the village, and I recognised most of the people who died, who guarded the camp. So. I went to school with one of them and we had a fight in the school playground and that was a reason for him to kill me in the camp. I was very lucky he didn't do that. But we had a number of instances where, let's say in this situation, former students killed their teachers. I was interrogated by, by one of my favorite teachers, but you had instances where a, a really bad student suddenly recognized his former teacher and it was his opportunity to exact some kind of revenge, uh, you know, uh, not some kind, actually, killing his former teacher. Come out. what has to be put in place for that kind of extreme behaviour to come out? I mean, does it have to be a breakdown? Everyone has to become traumatised. There has to be a sort of total breakdown when people can start dragging people out and killing them. I mean, you know, you've studied this, you've talked about it, you've studied history... What conditions have to be in place for that, that kind of behaviour to come out? Well, whenever we have a war situation, there's never a shortage of willing recruits to start torturing and killing people. Uh, so, sometimes some ordinary people are forced to participate in this, but this is why we have to work on preventing before on prevention before such events happen and to, to make sure that the rule of law applies to every single person. Because once we descend into this sort of violence, then everything becomes possible. Unimaginable, unimaginable becomes possible. My teacher became an interrogator and a torturer, sending people to their deaths. If there was no war, 
I believe my teacher would be still alive, still being equally popular at the same school where he taught me. Sokval, the Cambodian genocide famously, the villages to which you were sent, the rural areas, there was a lot of cruelty to the urban people like you. Uh, did you see both sides of human behavior? Did you see cruelty? Did you see great kindness as well? Well, I can say, I can tell you uh, the, uh, what happened in Cambodia is the, the people split into um, class. One is they really hated the capitalism and they just kind of hated and revenge, uh, claimed the victory to kill all the people who well educated who are different class from them. This kind of um, the people who uneducated the peasant one, because you just get jealous and resentful with the view successful because you got um, have a better life from them, and the influence from the people behind them to support them with the weapons and everything. And those people are completely new to me because I was born in the city. But most of the, my family who came from the villages or province, they went back to the, the area where they were born, they were born in the old home, home um, place and thing. They were killed by their own people, the villagers' people, because they know your background. They just killed you because they just hate you. That's one thing. And to, to learn about this, this, uh, experience, history thing, we, it happened before and before and before. We have to spread, spread the word and give all the young generation the, the education and tell them what happened to prevent this happen again. It could happen to anywhere in the world. In the world. We don't know. Luckily, we got all this uh, technology. So anything happened to another country, we knew straight away. But where it happened to, my, to myself in the killing field four and a half years, no news from anybody. They, there's no one come to help us at all. We've been tortured, killed, and one by one, right in front of me. Some of them just hate you, they kill you just, just for their pleasure. So what can you do? And everyone have to bow down for them to kill, not even uh, fight back or to defend yourself. You're just completely powerless for them just torture you and kill you. That's it, yeah. Did did you know did you know the people Sophie that attacked your family your community? Yeah, they were our neighbors. People who worked with my brothers, my fathers. We know we knew them very well. Why did they do it? They were instructed to do it from the top, the government. They were they trained. They didn't, didn't yeah. have to obey instructions. This is what the Nazis all claimed. We were only obeying orders. It's not true. It's a choice. They, they, had, they used to have training. and They were trained to kill. Yeah. The day they began, they had all the training and they had to do anything. And they were told how bad we are. They were told how we are snakes. So when you kill a snake, you hit it, you cut it, no mercy. Mm. I mean, this is a question now for, for everybody. Is it possible, have you guys found the ability to forgive, to perhaps un- or understand as Sophie has done? Before we go on to forgiveness, which is a hugely important issue. Can I 
just finish off the issue of um, where does this killing begin? Because I think it begins um, with people considering that considering themselves superior to other people. And it is there right throughout human society, the desire, the need, the encouragement to think of yourself as superior to chosen other people as targets, as inferior. And we need to overcome this. I think history is enormously important, but I think understanding human behavior, psychology, is even more important. And I've written a book called Love, Hate and Indifference, The Slide into Genocide. Where there isn't enough love at the beginning of life, it can be overtaken by hate. And we have families all over the world in many countries where children are brought up and taught to hate instead of experiencing love and therefore being able to give love. That is where genocide begins, and it just escalates. If we don't overcome it at its very roots and get people from in the education system, from the start of education in nursery and infant school to listen to each other, to talk with each other, to understand each other. That's the only possible way forward. But we don't do it. We focus on the exam league tables in this country and all over Europe and pretty much the world. We overvalue financial and academic achievement at the cost of emotional development. When the new government take, took over, they gave up tribes before genocide. There were tribes. So the president said, no, Hutu, no, Twa, no, Tutsi. Everyone was the same. That was at the beginning of forgiveness. And even those who were killing, he said, come back home and go back to your properties. That was forgiveness. So there's nothing much we can show that we forgive them. No revenge. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. I'm talking to four survivors of genocide. More after this. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It must be hard, this issue of revenge and forgiveness. I know in Cambodia, when I went there, there's huge bitterness. There's still members of Pol Pot's government in power now, yes. still still yes. ministers. And yet, have you found it able to, to forgive? Have you found able to move on? That question, I always answer that I never forgive them because what happened in Cambodia is from the Cambodian people who've been well-educated, the Cambodian leader, of the, of the the government, and they just change their brain and just want to torture and kill everybody just for their own power because they became uh, like uh, got all the power and to do what they want, dictator. And when those now, they all they are still in the government, still running the country, but nobody dare to say anything. Even we found, we found the head of the prisoner. Uh, and we spent million for the court case and about the genocide, but nothing done about it. He still get away, sleep in the nice house, comfortable life. And the people still suffer, nothing they can do about it. Like myself, I lost my properties in Cambodia, many, many places that my parents own and without business, everything, I never could not claim back. I live in England, I left everything behind. That's why I say to Everyone, England is my home, it's my life. I spend my life more than I spent in Cambodia. I spent here 20, 29 years. I left Cambodia when I was about 17, 18 in the jungle. So those years is a wild experience for me, and I learned from that. I want to tell the new, young generation about be aware. Yes, like Ruth just said before, that the, the psychological, everything material in the world, everything, everything one the same. You don't think, don't share the love and respect and care for each other. That's what genocide happened. When you saw many people, different class, different type of people, that's what happened when they start hating people with each other. Yeah. How about you, Kamal? How, how do you? I mean, how do you deal? You go back to Bosnia a lot. You must have, you must have forgiven. You you can you can you find that you can go there and walk the streets and without wanting to kill people and have your revenge. Well, when you experience this sort of violence, it's it's really uh, for some people it's even too hard to think about forgiveness uh, because actually you become the center of the whole world. Because, uh, you know, because of your own trauma. So hopefully one day we reach, we reach the point in our lives where we realize, well, you know, these things don't happen just to me. When we look back in history, these things have been happening ever, ever since the men started to walk. So when I was in the camps, I wanted to survive and I thought, well, one day I, I will be, I, I will get out. And these, these things will be happening to some other people as well. Unfortunately, it's true. And um, I think I was able to forgive when I realized, well, I am not the only person in this world. And what happened to me was just one event in my life. It was a significant event. But um, there is no recipe for everyone. I can only talk about myself and my own experiences. But I honestly believe that without forgiveness... And there is no future because if we are not prepared to forgive, 
then I think bizarrely we who survived, you know, genocides um, start perpetuating perpetuating violence that that can at some point in the future lead to new genocides. Ruth, when I look at you, I think of my own four-year-old daughter and I think of our happy life and, and, you know, the idea of it all being torn up and then sending her across Europe and me going to Shanghai. How do you, have you found able to forgive the people that did that to your, your, your family when you were so young? I was never aware of the people who did that to my family. I was only aware of my family. And, of course, it was my parents who sent me away. That's all that a four-year-old can understand. I experienced being sent away as rubbish, being a bad girl, not wanted. And, therefore, I had to find a way of forgiving my parents. I knew... um uh, in my head, cognitively, that they had saved my life. But at the same time, I had to battle with the experience of being sent away. And then, when I was able to get there and forgive my parents, I had to forgive myself for ever blaming them. So it was a hard road to forgive myself. And I see forgiveness as mainly a task that every individual has to do inside themselves. Um, I do not feel responsible to forgive people who have not immediately, directly hurt me, um, particularly if they have not owned the crime and regretted it. Then I think they're entitled to forgiveness. But that is not what happens on the whole. And I focus my energy um, uh, and my time and thinking into what an unforgiving law we have, even in this country. Punishment is, in my view, retaliation. And sending people to prison is nothing short of state vengeance and it doesn't work it's been proved not to work and that restorative justice has much more chance of helping people to reach a stage of owning and regretting their crime and then doing something to put it right i think we should delete the concept of punishment from our functioning and replace it with consequences consequences that are not primarily punitive. And that is what I think is behind the violence that ultimately leads to genocide. Sophie, you you travel back to Rwanda. Are you able to forgive the people who did this to your family? And have you you actually seen the individuals who did it? Mm, Came across to meet one when I was called to go and accuse them. Um, I went, but I didn't accuse them. I told them, panel that I'm not going to accuse, do what you want, because I had committed myself not to do, to, to revenge, not to hate them if I survive. So up to now. 
nobody has come to ask me to forgive them because they are they are not they are not seen but again even if i see them i can't hurt them or do bad to them can i just say something very quickly uh, for me it's really tragic to see so many survivors not just from my own community um not being able to to move on we use this expression this you know to move on and i think it's only because we are unable to forgive because a lot of the time we think of the perpetrator when we talk about forgiveness so in a way we remain shackled to our perpetrator and to our past so when we reach the point where where we can forgive genuinely then we let go of that past and we give ourselves a new lease of life uh, and you you've uh, you said even though you spent how many months were you in these these camps well i was detained in two camps for for 7 months but time in the camps was different from this time because if you know that that somebody may kill you in the next 2 minutes and it's like that all the time then time has a completely different different significance and how many times a day or how often do you think about your seven months in those camps now? Well, uh, if I'm doing some work like today, then I'm talking about it and obviously I'm thinking about that. But it's really, really important to me to to live my life as fully as possible, to, to do other things, you know, to appreciate art, to go and watch the water flowing or, you know, um, it's it's really, really important not to feel guilty because I survived. Sophie Houghton, do you think about what you went through in Rwanda? Mm. Yeah, what I went through in Rwanda during genocide, it's a, it's a lesson for me and for others to learn from. And I was impressed with children here after hearing my story, the feedback they gave me. They said... It's good to know all this because we need to improve the future. Not, I'm, I'm not dwelling what happened in the past and I want to move on. As you said, there is no need to think of those who did. Because when you, when you think what they did, it is not them. It happened, they didn't know they were like animals. So if you, you go back in the past, you will not move on in life. You will remain those days instead of moving on. Oh. <coughs> uh, and, but you, you said you have nightmares quite a lot. Yes, I do. Uh, maybe I will, I, I'm not prepared to forgive them because they are still exist in Cambodia. And they never brought to trial, you know, what happened to do. And I didn't have a chance to ask the question, why did you do it? But um, the nightmare, <coughs> excuse me, the nightmare is every, most every night. Um, the more you get older, you've got plenty of time to think about the past and try to memorize what happened. Some memory is nice memory. Some is not nice memory. It's like a nightmare. I like uh, I've been caught stuck in somewhere by the pole port and I couldn't find a way out of it. And when you woke up, you just panic and sweat and, you know, not panic and scared all the time. Yeah. No, it's... Um, sorry. <coughs> sorry. Uh, I, 
it's it's not for me to judge anyone, but it's really dangerous for survivors to play the judge or the prosecutor. So we have to actually think about these issues uh, like human beings, not to try to play politicians or, or experts in law. Otherwise, we never move on from, from uh, you know, our, well, not from our past, because this is just one part of our past. It's really unfortunate when we start identify our whole uh, lives with just one element of our past. Um, a while back, uh, Kemal introduced the uh, idea of guilt. And I think this is as important as forgiveness because it is um, usually a part of trauma that the person being persecuted and traumatized feels guilty, that they must be in some way responsible and guilty for it happening. And um, I think this needs to be much more known about and explored. Um, I live with a million and a half children who were murdered because they were not rescued from the Holocaust. Um, they're always there in the back of my mind, and I always think that we have lost some great scientists, musicians, people who would have made much better use of the chance to be rescued than I ever can. And that drives me. But it drives me in a direction of um, getting people to think and talk, um, hopefully usefully. But I think we need to pay more attention to guilt that gets to be part of the victim's experience rather than the people who are doing the bad things, the atrocities. What I'm saying that I can't forgive them because I have so many reasons and I'm not taking this as a, my personal matter, but what I cannot forgive the person who took my father away, lied to us that he could be retrained, brainwashed and come back again. We never see him coming back. I'm wondering what happened to my father. Would they kill him somewhere, executed somewhere? At least I want to know. And those, those murderers who, who are responsible for that crime still exist in Cambodia. None of them say sorry or uh, apologize or nothing. They still stood there in power. That's why I said I'd never give them. I want the world to take them uh, to court and find justice and want him to confess why, why he did it. I want to know why he did it. When you guys uh, look, 2016 has, it's been a difficult year in many ways. We've got Trump in America. We've had uh, a, a, a rising um, nationalism, I think it's fair to say, in Europe. We've, we've seen uh, communities demonized. The, the rhetoric is being ratcheted up, I think, even in Europe. And, and Marine Le Pen is doing well in France. And we see people doing well in Holland and Austria and Poland. As as survivors who've been the, through the things you've been in, how, do things make you nervous at the moment, Ruth? Um, well, certainly it raises anxiety, the issues you've just talked about. But I challenge people to look at it from a different standpoint. Before the Holocaust, it was simply victor's justice. The Holocaust led to the Nuremberg Trials, which was a milestone where 
some perpetrators were tried so that the world could know. Um, that was the beginning, and it led to two new crimes that are indictable uh, to bring people to justice, the cri crimes against humanity and the crime of genocide. We're not able to use it at the moment because of um, sovereign immunity allows um, genocidal leaders of countries to sit in comfort, um, untouchable because of sovereign immunity. But this has uh, the crimes uh, which are there on the statute book in international criminal law are now being supported by R2P, Responsibility to Protect, which I find very few people know anything about yet, though there's masses of information on the internet about it. I see this as a really hopeful sign. The question, who is responsible for protecting each and every person alive on this planet? Ruth, I campaigned for Responsibility to Protect in Good. 2005. There is no mechanism to enforce the government of this country to intervene in Syria on behalf have, of Syrians. Why do we think in terms of force? The whole ambience of R2P is to find ways that are not violent and forceful. Well, and I think they will, if enough people are determined to think and protest without violence... I think we have a chance of getting there. Well, um, uh, going back to your question, I think we live in frightening times. Uh, we are not seeing the rise of nationalism, we are seeing the rise of fascism. And it's happening in European Union. It's happening in France, it's happening in Hungary, it's happening in Bulgaria where we have unregulated militias chasing and, and persecuting migrants from the, from the Middle East. I say we live in a glass house right now. And I also want to believe that there is a solution to the current situation. I just can't see it right now because our leaders are not willing to even think of some alternatives to the uh, current situation. We have uh, to get different leaders. Yeah. So when you see Trump uh, speaking out on the news, you see some of these events in Europe, we've been, and, and we hear that there's been a rise in hate crime here in the UK <clears throat> since the summer. Does that make you feel nervous, Sophie? Yeah, it does, but I have hope that there, there will be less crime in the future. Um, I don't know, but the way I see um, how children are into learning all this and wanting to improve the, the future... I don't see them uh, ordering to to organize genocide the way I see them responding. I don't know whether in the, in the past such education has been. Yes, the world is uh, is becoming yes worse and worse. But the way I see the people like you making awareness and make you know, educating children, I can see that the future is going to be better.
Well, thank you very much, everyone, for sharing your stories and your thoughts. And uh, Kamal, I thought you put it beautifully earlier. Uh, history came knocking on your door. And I think too often people listening to this podcast and me and all of us, we think history is the Spanish Armada and we think it's the Palace of Versailles and we think it's Julius Caesar. But history is the things that have happened to all you four. History of things happen to all of us, everyone listening to this every single day. Uh, history is what we're living right now. All of us. So thank you for reminding, giving us the most powerful reminder of that. Thank well, you. Thank you for giving us all opportunity to talk about it today mm. and hope our voice will be broadcasted. Everyone will be listening to it. It's not a, it's not a nice story to listen, but it's experience. Share of the people like yourself and all the survivors you know, to, to the world. This so is the hope for the future. Yeah. Five of us sitting yeah. together and talking and listening to each other. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small, windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast, we can do more and more ambitious things, and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.